Welcome to episode 35 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today we are continuing our series on Star Wars and story, uh, and we are talking about the Return of the Jedi. So, yeah... Um... I'll confess, this is my least favorite of the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. And I really kind of can't explain why. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it it's not like it's a bad movie. And in fact, in theory, it's fairly good. The stakes get upped for all of our characters. You know, we've got clear goals defined for every single one and what we need to do. It's, you know, overall fairly well-crafted, but just for some reason, it, it actually bores me. I don't know. What do you, I don't know. What about you? Yeah, I would say, I mean, Empire Strikes Back is certainly my favorite of the three. And then, yeah, I would probably, I would probably rank them Empire Strikes Back, then Star Wars slash A New Hope, and then... Return of the Jedi, um, which is not to say that it's a bad movie. I just think of the three, it's not my favorite. Yeah. Well, let's 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 sit down and see if we can't figure out why it's not really our favorite in the original trilogy. So we can start with the recap, which I will do again. Basically, the movie opens with um, kind of a shot of the Empire rebuilding the Death Star. Um, oh, and so we have our opening scroll too. Forgot to mention our opening scroll is basically um, after the end of Empire. Uh, Luke and friends have sort of been regrouping their forces, and they are now on a mission to rescue Han from the clutches of Jabba the Hutt. If you remember correct, if you remember from the last episode, Han had been frozen in carbonite and basically sold to Jabba the Hutt uh, to pay off the bounty that's on his head. So that's kind of how, and and the. Empire is in the process of building a Death Star. That's basically more or less our opening scrawl. So we get a shot of that. Um, we see Darth Vader come and come to this in-process Death Star and say, you need to work faster. You know, the Emperor's on his way. And then we go move to Tatooine proper, which is the planet where Luke is from and also where Jabba the Hutt lives. And... Basically, it's pretty straightforward. Our heroes infiltrate Jabba the Hutt's gangster palace. Uh, Leia is in disguise as a bounty hunter herself. She's brought Chewbacca um, as like her fake bounty, um, which Jabba the Hutt accepts. And later that night, she rescues Han from the carbonite uh, from the carbonite chamber. Mm-hmm. And that's actually when we get the reveal that it is Leia. Yes. Because she's disguised the whole time. So, like, for an audience member, for me, who hadn't seen it before, (laughs) I was like, who is this? And then she saves Han and pulls the helmet off, and it's Leia. 
Um, so she rescues Han, and we have this, uh, what we think is going to be a touching reunion, but it's cut short because they are, in fact, caught by Jabba the Hutt and his gang, who has actually kind of this amazing laugh, like, <laughs> which I don't know why it always amuses me, but it does. Um, so they are caught. Um, Chewie and Han are thrown back into prison. Leia is made into Jabba's slave girl. <laughs> it's not great. No. It's not great. Because up until this point, the movies have not objectified her at all. And until now. <laughs> In fact, I would say all none of the ladies have really been objectified until this movie. Mm-hmm. Because we sort of skipped over Jabba had another slave girl who was a dancer and did not respond well to his advances, so he had her killed by the Rancor. Like, it's not great. Mm-hmm. So I have a yeah, I have a question about that scene too. So that so George Lucas has altered these movies after the fact. And so the versions that are available now are not the versions that originally aired and were released in theaters when the movies originally came out. So he's done a lot of like CGI and digital stuff and added things in and stuff like that. So in this scene with the first slave girl, the dancer, She's there, but then there's this, like, CGI band of, you know, singers and aliens and stuff. And I'm assuming all of that stuff was added in, but was the dancer in the original? And they just added in that music? Yes, the dancer was in the original. The band was also in the original, but the extended musical sequence was not there. Okay. So in the background, you saw, like, the band kind of, like, playing their music and, like, mm-hmm. you know, shimmying away or whatever. But the dan- but the dancer was always there. Okay. So, yeah. So we've established that Jabba just keeps a, a, a rancor, which is essentially just a huge monster in a pit underneath his throne. <laughs> anyway, so our heroes have been uh, recaptured by Jabba, and Luke comes in. And he's gone full Jedi now. He's got the hood up and the cloak um, and uses a whole host of Jedi mind tricks to get into the palace um, and tries to use the Jedi mind trick on Jabba to get him to release his friends. Um, And, you know, he's like, your Jedi mind tricks don't work on me. Uh, I'm not weak, not weak minded. Um, So... Luke, on the other hand, throughout this whole time, he's been fairly serene, despite, like, nothing hap- like nothing really going his way. Um, and he's like, you know, let, it, let them go, Jabba, or you'll, you'll regret it, you'll regret it, you'll regret it. Jabba keeps ignoring them and says, well, you, y'all are going to go be fodder for the thrown into the Sarlacc pit, which is basically a giant stomach in the middle of the desert with tentacles and teeth. For the lack of a better word. Um, So they're all put onto a barge, taken out to this pit in the middle of the desert. Um, Yeah, I called it his party bus on my live tweet the first time I watched it. Well, it is his party bus. um, I think it's actually just called the sail barge. Um, They all go out, um, the prisoners on one barge and Leia and Jabba on the other. Um, And he's sentenced them to death. And Luke, of course, is like... You know, be aware, Jabba, like, this is your last chance. And Jabba laughs and 
orders them to throw Luke into the pit, and of course Luke unleashes his full Jedi skills. He's, you know, unleashed, you know, starts defying gravity. R2-D2 throws him uh, a newly constructed lightsaber, and um, they the he- our heroes rescue themselves, more or less. Mm-hmm. So this is more or less the first act of the movie. Our heroes are now reunited, and Han has been saved, and they all depart to basically start the second act of this film. Luke goes off to Dagobah to see Yoda, and Han and Leia go off to the rebel base to formulate a plan of attack against this new Death Star. So, uh, we'll start with Luke's storyline. So when Luke goes to to Yoda, Yoda, who was pretty old in the first movie, is now on his deathbed and he's dying. And he pretty much tells Luke, you're a Jedi now, I don't need to teach you. Um, oh, by the way, yes, Darth Vader is your father. <laughs> um, and then dies. <laughs> That's the, You know, I think I'm starting, now in this recap, as I'm starting to tell the story, I think I'm starting to understand why this movie doesn't work for me. Anyway, we'll discuss it as we get further along. Um, and Luke is pretty upset by this, and then Obi-Wan shows up in his Force Ghost form, and they talk a little bit more about Luke's family, because one of Yoda's final words was, there is another Skywalker. So we kind of got a hint of that in the previous movie, after Luke had left Dagobah to confront Vader. Yoda and Obi-Wan were having this discussion, and, and Yoda was like, there is another. And then we find go to the reveal that Leia is Force-sensitive at the end of the Empire Strikes Back movie. So while they have not explicitly made this connection yet, um, when Luke and Obi-Wan's Force Ghosts have their conversation, it pretty much gets confirmed because, you know, Luke is like, Master Yoda said that there was another Skywalker, and Obi-Wan's like, the other one that he was talking about is your twin sister. And Luke's like, Leia. Leia is my twin sister. Um... So again, kind of demonstrating that there's sort of extra, there's an extra sensory side to the force that you can Mm -hmm. sense things. And Luke has sensed and kind of has always known that Leia was his sister. We'll discount all the weird romantic kisses that the two of them have shared in the previous two movies. Um, But so he's, and so Obi-Wan kind of counsels him and says, look, yes, that's true, but bury that knowledge deep inside because the emperor will use that against you. Um, and basically Yoda and, and Obi-Wan pretty much lay out to Luke in order to become a real Jedi, you have to confront Vader. Uh, meanwhile, back at the rebel base, they are formulating a plan of attack against the new death star, which is currently orbiting the forest moon of Endor because the moon itself is has is generating a force field of protection around the moon. So there's kind of two prongs to this attack that they're going to launch against the Death Star. One force is going to the force moon of Endor to destroy the generator that's creating the shield around the Death Star. And another force, once the shield is down, is going to destroy the Death Star from, from within. So Luke rejoins everyone at the at the rebel base. Luke, Han, and Leia are part of the team that goes to the forest moon of Endor to destroy the generator. And Lando actually takes the, is, takes the Millennium Falcon and will be using that against the attack on, on the 
Death Star. At this point, our rebels think that the Death Star is not operational. So they think this is a preemptive strike. Unknown to them, the Death Star actually is operational. Um, and I can't remember. Do they know whether or not the Emperor is actually on the Death Star or not? I don't think so. You would know more than I would because I've only seen it twice. <laughs> anyway, the anyway the Emperor is on the Death Star. He shows up, you know, because that's kind of it's set up in the beginning. Because Darth Vader's like the Emperor's coming here to investigate or to oversee operations, and it should be moving much faster than it is. So. Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know if it's actually made clear if the rebels know that the emp- the emperor is there. I thought that they did when I was a kid. Of course, I haven't actually rewatched this recently, so now I, I can't remember. Regardless, all the pieces are basically in place. You've got the right. emperor and Darth Vader on the Death Star. So basically, destroying the Death Star means metaphorically the end of the Empire. Um, so as they come in. To the forest moon of Endor, Luke senses Vader's presence and is like, I shouldn't have come. I'm jeopardizing this mission because now Vader knows I'm here. Because that through the connection of the force, now they are able to sense each other. Um, on the forest moon of Endor, we have this long, protracted, kind of unnecessary detour into the Ewoks. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a huge part of why this movie does not work for me. Not because the Ewoks themselves are necessarily a bad thing. It's just that this interlude kind of doesn't have a point. Yeah. Basically, and it's long. And it's long. It really is long. Basically, long story short, Leia gets, uh, during a confrontation with stormtroopers on the forest moon of Endor, Leia falls off the speeder bike... Um, and it meets up with a little walking teddy bear called Wicket, uh, who takes her to the tribe. And because Leia's missing, Han and Luke organize a search party for her, and then they get captured by the Ewoks. Uh, are about to be sacrificed, and Han is about to be turned into dinner. Um, when Leia kind of shows up, it's like, oh wait, I know them. They don't listen to Leia, and then they see C-3PO and think he's a god. Which is yeah. this like, weird sequence where they think C-3PO is a god. Um, and then Luke uses his force powers to essentially like move C-3PO around to make it, to further cement in the Ewok's mind that C-3PO is a god. It's like really weird and uncomfortable actually, now that I think about the implications. <laughs> So then we have this long segment, but basically, in this kind of moment of quiet and peace, Luke is like, I have to surrender myself to Vader, Vader, and I have to face him, and he tells this to Leia. But before he goes to face his father, he tells Leia, you're my, you're my, Swiss, you're my sister, and you also have the ability to wield the Force. And Leia is kind of upset by this, because she doesn't want Luke to go, and she, she thinks he's walking into danger, but she goes off, he goes off anyway. And so then we kind of move into the third act of the movie where Luke has surrendered himself to Vader and Vader brings him before the Emperor. And so now Luke is being tested. He's being tempted to the dark side of the Force. Where the Emperor, who is actually pretty great, I really think the actor is fantastic. And he's kind of this, like, wrinkly, old, ugly guy. 
with like this like froggy voice. He gets Vader to fight Luke, but Luke is consistently resisting. I will not fight my father. I will not fight my father. I will not give give into the dark side. I will not give into the dark side. Uh, Meanwhile, Leia and Han break into the generator, and there's a bunch of shenanigans (laughs) as they try and destroy the generator. Um, And this is all starting to culminate. Luke facing off his father. Luke kind of starts, or rather Vader senses that Luke is hiding something from him and senses that there's another, that Luke has a sister. And he says, well, if you won't turn to the dark side, then maybe we'll turn your sister to the dark side. And that's kind of the last straw for Luke. Luke won't have that, so that's sort of the the impetus that gets him fighting his father, and they start battling with lightsaber in front of a cackling emperor. Meanwhile, the rebel fleet has arrived out of hyperspace and has come to destroy the Death Star, but the shields aren't down yet, and then they discover, oh no, the Death Star is actually operational. So we have some more diversions while everything is slowly being moved into place. Um, finally, the generator gets destroyed, the shields go down, our rebel fleet goes in, basically another trench run, goes inside to destroy the Death Star, and Luke has this confrontation with his father where he's blinded by his rage um, about the idea that they would turn his family against to the dark side, that they would turn his mm-hmm. love and loyalty against him, overpowers his father with aggressive use of the Force, cuts off his father's hand, and then realizes, wait, this is not what Jedi are supposed to do and not what Jedi are supposed to be. So in, in that moment, Luke throws away his lightsaber and chooses not to kill his father because to kill his father would be to succumb entirely to the dark side of the Force. And he says, I am not... And he says, he throws away his lightsaber and says, I will not be turned. I'm a Jedi like my father was before me. And so the Emperor is like, well too bad. So then he shoots force lightning at at Luke, tortures him while Luke pleads with Vader um, to stop him and this is when Vader has his change of heart seeing his son tortured by the Emperor and lifts the Emperor and throws him over the edge of a railing Mm -hmm. um, shocking himself in the process so Vader has now been mortally injured. So while all this is going on, mind you, the whole generator and the rebel fleet flight is still happening, um, and they are successful. Luke gets his father out of the Death Star, but they have this moment of reconciliation where Darth Vader is like, take my helmet off, I want to see you with my own eyes for the first time, um, and tell your sister that she was right, that there is good in- there was still good inside me, and dies. So... Luke escapes the Death Star just before the Rebels blow it up. Mm-hmm. They all land on the forest moon of Endor. Luke burns his father's body in a funeral pyre. And they all have a party and celebrate mm-hmm. the end of the Empire. And uh, Luke sees the Force ghost of Obi-Wan, Yoda, and a surprisingly young version of his dad. <laughs> which was not in the original cut of this movie. Uh, it was a different- oh, that's right! Is it... <gasps> Isn't it Hayden Christensen? Do they put him in there? Yes. So when I rewatched this a couple years ago now, I guess, um, when I watched it, I was so surprised by Hayden Christensen's appearance. I was like, what? 
What is what? It, and it looks yeah. really weird. It looks really weird. It really looks like his head has been pasted in. Um, but yeah, that's it. Everything is all happy-go-lucky now. Yay. So, having just recapped this whole movie for you, I now realize what the problem with Return of the Jedi is. Is that, while story-wise, it actually is pretty well-constructed, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Each act is a specific goal and a thing. There is actually no tension carrying the movie forward. While Luke's temptation by the dark side is sort of set up in in Empire, and I think it's actually better handled slash addressed in Empire than it is in Return of the Jedi, it's never really followed through on a way that's really emotionally compelling to me. Uh-huh. It should be, though. Like, it should be, but it isn't. It doesn't work for me at all. At all. Like, the whole the whole Vader thing, like, Vader's storyline and then Luke's storyline in this movie just does not work for me. Mm. I, and part of it, I think, you know, I, I've explained that I came to these movies very late in life as I only watched them this past year. Um, so a lot of that is, is partly like my own preconceived notions and then confronting the reality of the actual story. And there were some big gaps there. So when I first watched these, I didn't realize that Vader was not like the supreme villain. I didn't realize that the emperor was a character or existed. And so that was hard for me to get acclimated to because it just I just didn't know that was a thing and I had just always assumed okay Vader's the bad guy um and his well I guess is he redeemed for you at the end because I think you know they're intending to make it a redemption story right is is he redeemed for you do you find the act of saving Luke's life enough to redeem the character for everything else that he's done? Because I don't. (laughs) Before I I saw the prequels, yes. (laughs) Right, right. If you take these as a self-contained story, which at the time they were, and we didn't have the prequels to see how horrific they were, because I agree that adds a whole new layer of just fuckery to everything. (laughs) Um... You know, I, I guess that for me, it just didn't feel, it didn't feel like true development. Like I, I couldn't see where that's coming from in him. Well, we're told this, we actually can't see a lot of Vader's conflict because his entire face is encased encased in a mask. So a lot of that work that actors do that put in torment or whatever that mm-hmm. they're feeling on their faces, you, we don't see any of that with Vader. We can't because we never see his face. Right. Um, it worked for me insofar as maybe not a true redemption, like he's not wholly good by the end. But I remember watching this growing up and I never questioned Vader's redemption because he's been he's been the Emperor's watchdog more or less forever and ever and ever and this the one thing he does 
before he dies, the one good true act that he does is not necessarily save his son's life, is to disobey the emperor. Right. And that's actually what I took away from him saving Luke. It's not necessarily because he suddenly became good. It was just later realizing that he's been manipulated his whole life. Do you think that's it, though? Because do you think that if it wasn't Luke, that Vader would have come to the realization that being the Emperor's watchdog is wrong and that he no longer wanted to do it? No, if it wasn't Luke, if it wasn't Luke, it wouldn't have happened. And that's why I feel it's not... It's not the same as him realizing, like, I am contributing to this, you know, machine that is oppressing people and that is terrible and whatever else. Like, to me, it's completely, it's motivated by the fact that, okay, I'm trying to save my son's life and it's not necessarily about disobeying the emperor for me. I don't know. Well, I don't think it's disobeying the emperor because I actually never thought that Vader never, I never felt even as a kid, that Vader regretted being part of the Empire. That was not what the redemption right. was for me. For me, it was just choosing. It was the first good choice he had made in a long life of terrible choices. Mm-hmm. And it was that good choice that ultimately killed him. And therefore, mm-hmm. yeah. to me, it was maybe not like an emotionally satisfying redemption, but it was a redemption that I could buy, basically. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to get your opinion on is Luke's part of it. Because this is this is a story beat that is a classic in these stories where you have your hero who is genuinely good. And they, you know, in the face of all odds, walk towards certain death to face their enemies and you know, right whatever wrongs they possibly can, even though it's a complete David and Goliath situation and there's no way they could possibly win. Um, You know, just really foolish and stupid, but their goodness is so innate that they have to follow their hearts and and make essentially the sacrifice. We see Luke do it here. He's certainly not the only one who does it. I mean, Harry does it in Harry Potter. Tons of other heroes and tons of other stories do this thing. And, I mean, I suppose you can't, it's not that you can criticize it because it is a trope and it does exist. And whether or not, you know, it's, it's, I just want to know if that kind of a thing, if that story movement is compelling for you. Because I think for me, part of the problem, and I mentioned previously that I don't find Luke compelling, I, I don't connect with these, like, white hat characters, these like super good Captain America like pure characters and so it always frustrates me (laughs) that they're like with no plan, like with no like backup of like I'll go in here and I'll try the path of innate goodness and if it doesn't work out then we'll blow shit up like you know there's no like there's no backup or strategy or anything, it's just like pure naivete 
that things are going to work out, and they do because it's our hero and the goodness is so pure. Because that's like what this is, right? Luke is being tempted by the dark side of the Force, and he confronts that in that he has, you know, this moment of aggression that makes him pause and, and reassess, and he ultimately chooses the side of good. So, like, he is tempted, and he does confront that head-on, but the Force really... It's about morality. It's about innate goodness, goodness like versus evil, light versus darkness. Um, See, I actually thought of the force being more like a choice, huh? Um, this Luke storyline, while it's pretty tropey and cliche, and we've seen it before, I like it. Um, these sorts of storylines with the noble, self-sacrificing hero can and can't do and don't work for me depending on the execution of it. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mind the idea of a of a noble self-sacrificing hero. There's something very I don't want to say noble, but there's something kind of admirable about resigning yourself to the fate of what will happen. And that's and maybe it's just because for me there's something very vaguely eastern about the force the uh, the idea of the force being it's kind of more like an eastern concept than it is like a western concept of magic even though it's essentially magic <laughs> <laughs> but this concept of the force is being having a light side and having a dark side it's not innately good or bad it's uh the person chooses whether or not they want to take the path of good and to take the path of of darkness and for somebody, you know, and usually the self-sacrificing hero story is somebody giving themselves up to the fate of the universe and letting the kind of the universe decide what happens. That as a trope actually does not bother me. Um, and that's kind of the way I see it. Because it, Luke giving himself up to Vader is like, this is something that he knows he has to do. So it's intensely personal it's i mean even though he says i know there's good in you and i'm he, he's gonna try and redeem vader i guess but i never because, read it that way yeah i guess that's my thing is like what is he going there to do like he sat like he surrenders himself to vader and then they just kind of talk and walk and vader's trying to convince him to come you know to the dark side but like what is luke's what is luke's plan like i'm just gonna go to Vader and talk to him and hang out on this ship and like he he doesn't have a plan to do anything it seems to me until he's forced into that action so I, I don't understand like he feels that he needs to sac or not sacrifice himself I keep using that word but that's not exactly what's happening but he feels that he needs to surrender and, and go to Vader but I don't understand why it's his final test before he's truly a Jedi. I mean, that's really it. Okay, okay. Like, it's I, can, not, I can accept that. Like, he, he, it's his final test, and Yoda pretty much tells him, too, you got to face Vader before you become a Jedi, <laughs> before Yoda dies. Um, yeah. So, I can, if I look at it that way, if I look at it as, like, this is his final, you know, reckoning with himself. and Like, for Luke, it wasn't ever about winning or losing. It was about, for him, it was about a journey of becoming... A Jedi. So it looked at it that way. It didn't really matter if he didn't have a plan. It was something that he needed to do was to confront his father about it. Right. Okay. So that that doesn't bother me. I think the whole temptation to the dark side thing is kind of 
perfunctory. It's set up so well at the end of Empire because he mm-hmm. abandons his training because of his feelings, because of his recklessness, because of his love for his friends. But then when we see him in Jedi, he, he's more or less gotten over that. And he's like yeah. self-assured and serene. So him being tempted by the dark side is, like I said, perfunctory. It's just kind of there. And yeah, that I feel that part of it should... could have been handled much better, but like the idea of it doesn't actually bother me. Right, right. So the execution, yeah. I mean, I feel like they should have seeded that from the beginning of the movie and have the tension for Luke throughout the movie be, you know, this constant self doubt and concern. Like you should have threaded that from the very beginning, so that when he does go to Vader, we already don't know. Like, what is he going to? What is he going to do? And then in choosing the light, you know, that's Mm -hmm. the resolution that he's been struggling with this whole time. So, yeah, that could have been handled better, I think. Or at least maximized. Yeah. Or just deepened. (laughs) Like, Luke's journey from beginning to end, I actually like. I know you don't find him that compelling. And even though he's not my favorite character, I, as a story, like it. I think it's fine. It works for me. I think it could have been handled better, for sure. Um, that, And I think my biggest problem with Jedi as a movie is just that of all the things that you set up in Empire and it's set up so masterfully, it's not actually followed through on. Like jer- like Luke's internal struggle about, between the light and the dark about what to choose, about him not giving in to the, those impulses or emotions, and all of that is just not there in this movie. He's pretty much already, like, all but the diploma, essentially, like a fully actualized Jedi at the beginning of this movie. Um, And as a cinematic reveal, it works, right? The first time we see him in this movie, he's in a hooded cloak. You know, know, it's calling to mind Obi-Wan and everyone else. And then, of course, the big reveal that he lost his lightsaber in the previous film, but you see him with a new lightsaber. And Vader even remarks, you constructed your own lightsaber, you're pretty much now a Jedi. So, like, as a as a reveal in a movie, it's pretty cool, but we're missing that. We're missing the, the journey that happened, because essentially, in-universe... Or the Watsonian interpret like the Watsonian logic of this universe, it's been two years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we don't see any of that struggle for him. So, as a result, like I think the emotional stakes aren't as high as they should have been for Luke, and the focus shifts weirdly onto Vader and not on Luke because we never yeah. question. We never question Luke's goodness, ever. We never question that the light side of the Force is something that he's going to choose. That's a foregone conclusion, so therefore we don't have any investment in that part of the story. So the now the will they or won't they part of the this story actually becomes about Vader. Will Vader become redeemed? Mm-hmm. And this is like an 11th hour shift that doesn't really work because we haven't spent the past two movies building up Vader as this, like, particularly complex figure because he isn't. Mm -hmm. He really isn't, you know? Like, he's this, like, a wonderful villain. He really is, you know? But then you kind of pivot towards this possible redemption story, and it's just not held up at all. So, you know. So, but overall, it's fine. Like, I think... 
yeah, I mean, Luke's journey in this particular movie, it's fine with me. I don't really, I don't really mind. There's some moments that I find kind of touching towards the end, especially as Anakin is dying. Um, and the, actually the scene where he's burning his father's fa- father's body on the funeral pyre, I thought was very beautiful. Mm-hmm. So like, all of that is fine. Um, yeah, you know, there's no tension. There's no emotional tension in this movie. That's my other problem because Han and Leia have no emotional tension either. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. They do have a few moments that I really like. Um, I mean, I love them. They still have their banter and stuff. But essentially, it's also a foregone conclusion that they're together. There's this weird sort of Leia won't hasn't told Han that Luke is her brother weirdness mm-hmm. in there. I, but, I really like that scene because right before Luke leaves, he tells Leia, you're my sister, and he goes, and she's really upset and emotional. And Han comes out and wants her to talk about what's wrong and she's like you know I just need some space I need a minute you know and he kind of flips out at her for not wanting to talk to him um and then he immediately apologizes like in the exact same scene and I feel like nine times out of ten every other story would have him storm off without apologizing to carry that tension through And the fact that he apologizes immediately just make... I mean, it doesn't resolve the overlying tension of her being upset and Luke and Han not knowing what's going on, but he apologizes for his outburst. And I love that because I feel like that's what actual people in emotionally mature relationships do. (laughs) And we never see that in fiction for the sake of, like, you know, extending conflict and tension. And so I loved that a lot. Yeah, well, the other thing is I... Despite the whole weird insertion of Luke as a third leg in their relationship again at the last minute, like, yes, there was this kind of funny rivalry between the two of them, but it was never serious. No. In the first movie, there's this kind of adorable scene where um, the first movie, Han's like, well, what do you you think? But what about a girl like her and a guy like me? And Luke's just like, nope. (laughs) Which I thought was pretty cute and funny. And then there is that scene in Empire where Leia gives Luke a kiss, a romantic kiss. Mm-hmm. But it's really to make Han react. Jealous, yeah. Yeah, and Han doesn't actually react to that either. He's just like, whatever. <laughs> so this inclusion of Luke as this weird third party to their relationship in this movie, it's like... Hasn't this already been resolved? It's not mm-hmm. like Luke was ever really a threat to that relationship to begin with. I think it's I think the purpose of it is to just tie them into the like main narrative more sort of like to somehow tie them together because after they all split up, their stories really are very separate, yeah. Yeah. And like while while having Luke be this weird third wheel in their relationship doesn't actually connect to the important plot points or, or emotional plot points even, or anything, at least like when you see Han and Leia on screen now, you feel like his presence there. And so you haven't completely forgotten about him when he's not there, I guess, maybe, I don't know. 
I mean, I think it's pretty well established that they all care about Luke. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I like that scene where Luke tells Leia that she's his sister. I like that mm-hmm. scene a lot, actually. And I also like that what you mentioned, too, when Han comes up. is like, why are you upset? You can tell Luke, but you can't tell me. Mm-hmm. I like that scene. And it feels realistic. But for her to, like, not tell him, maybe, I don't know, like, the next day or something... Right. And to, like, hold out until the very end of the movie, which is also weird. Because then you have this, like, strange scene where Han comes up and is, like, again, it's a very mature thing to do, and I like it. And he's like, well, if you're in love with Luke, I will step aside. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, no, he's my brother. And it's just kind of... It's not earned. (laughs) Yeah. And it feels kind of like false tension because he was never a threat to that relationship. Yeah, and the audience knows the whole time. Yeah. So the audience isn't with Han in that we're waiting for the answer to that question, too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, and it's not like it's a completion of an emotional arc for Han. It's not like he's established as being jealous of Luke the whole right. time. And now admitting that he would step aside would... Yeah, no, it's not that either. He's never been established as being jealous of Luke, so... And he isn't actually really jealous of Luke in this movie either, and it's like he's trying to step aside, but it's still just weird and not great. (laughs) To say nothing of the entire Ewok segment. Yeah. Which, I... (laughs) This is a deep, dark secret I'm going to admit to you guys. Uh, I I don't like the Ewoks in this movie, and I watched <laughs> Caravan of Courage, the great Ewok adventure, when I was 12, and I watched it willingly. So, <laughs> it just... It feels like an entirely different movie when uh-huh. the Ewoks are there. And Star Wars has always been aimed towards children, I think people tend to forget that because it's it really is one of the few all-ages films that there are in the world. Um, but it really was intended for kids. and But this is kiddy in a way that is pandering to me. I mean, they're walking teddy bears. Yeah. And it's... I don't... Like it just doesn't work for me, and it's just just this long, pointless, really uncomfortable scene where the Ewoks are worshiping C-3PO, and it's just like I don't like this vibe that's coming off of this, and and of course they show up to save the day because they've established friendships with their heroes. You know, they fight against the stormtroopers uh-huh. with their primitive technology, and that as a concept doesn't actually bother me. But they all, and I don't know if it's just a function of the look or what, but they all seem kind of incompetent and yeah. seem to to win basically based on luck and not actual skill or tactic. So, so yeah, that's kind of the big albatross that is kind of hanging around the neck of this movie, I guess. But, like, for me, the successful parts of this movie are actually Luke's story. Even though it could have been executed better, I think there's a through line from beginning to end for Luke. Everything else is kind of a little bit episodic, and it doesn't seem to have any real connection to Luke's storyline, whereas Empire felt seamless, despite Uh the fact that it was disconnected as well between Luke's story 
and Han and Leia's. So, right. yeah, it just didn't... This one just doesn't come together for me. Yeah. Still much better than any of the prequels. Oh, yeah. Still miles <laughs> better. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if I have anything else to say on Jedi, really. There's some really cute moments between Han and Leia that I really love. Um, there's that callback to the I love you, I know scene, which I think mm-hmm. is great. Um, it's actually Han that tells her, I love you. And she says, I know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. And when she goes, when she saves him from the, from being frozen, you know, he can't see anything and he's like, who is it? And she said, somebody who loves you. <laughs> which I just thought was really cute. I mean, it still has its humor, um, which I think is pretty important for a Star Wars movie. It has to be, you know, fun, which is something the prequels are just lacking in entirely, is the sense of fun and adventure and humor. And Prequels are lacking in a lot of other things, too. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get there. I'm not looking forward to discussing this, except I am, because then I can finally unleash all of my frustration about these Mm films. But... Yeah, as a conclusion to the trilogy, I think Empire, I think Jedi is competent. You know, the stakes are neatly set up; they are neatly overcome. But I think that's the problem with it too: is it's just neat. I don't ever. I'm never actually truly ever worried for my heroes in in the way that I still am in Empire occasionally, even though I've seen these movies a bazillion times. I think the reason I love Empire so much is it still gets me to care. And to still wish things had turned out differently by the end of that movie. But in Jedi, everything is so neat. Everything is so neatly packaged and resolved. And it feels a little bit like paid by numbers. Like, this point, we still have this obstacle. And then it's overcome by this thing. It just, I feel like you can see the scaffolding in this movie. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. So that's kind of the lackluster end to the original trilogy. <laughs> Any closing thoughts, Kelly? No, I mean, um, even though I agree overall and, and I agreed on my first watch of this movie, I still, despite all that, really was pleasantly surprised. Um, you know, as a whole, the trilogy was so much more engaging than I was ever expecting it to be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. And it's it's fun now, too, to see how much other fictional properties owe to Star Wars. Yeah. That, you know, that you, you know, obviously, you know, Star Wars is a huge part of just our social consciousness now. So, like I said, I knew characters and I knew all the major plot points and I knew all this stuff without ever seeing the movies. So you, you know, on one level, I understood how deeply it had influenced pop culture. But on the other hand, after watching it, like, I remember in, in my live tweets, I had comments about like, oh, I, I understand so much more about the show Firefly now. Mm-hmm. And I under, understand so much more. Even scenes in um, Independence Day, the Will Smith movie, <laughs> like actual scenes in that movie. I've seen that movie, like, a disgusting amount of times. Um, it's great. It's fantastic. I'm very nervous about this sequel they have coming up. No, let's but, not um, talk about it. Let's I know, I know. <laughs> but but scenes in that movie, 
that owe so much to Star Wars, so much to Star Wars, and it's just crazy to see how big of an influence this franchise has had on everything that's come after it. Yeah. I mean, the story beats are very old and very familiar. They're in Mm -hmm. a lot of stories throughout the world, a lot of myths, a lot of fairy tales. So there's nothing at all original about Star Wars. But the way it was packaged and presented to us just feels timeless. And I think I love the characters, too. Like, you know, even though Luke, like I said, even though Luke isn't my favorite, I still like him. I still root for him. I still, you know... And, of course, like, some of my affection is slightly colored by the fact that I did go on to read all of the... A lot, not all, of the extended universe novels. And a lot of them are quite good. And this, you know... But I I just have affection for our main trio, and I think they have really wonderful chemistry, and they stand out. And and I think, for me, that was the reason this trilogy is... more successful than others that are that try to emulate its success is because the characters are so great. Um, even even our sidekicks are pretty great. You know, Chewbacca, R two D two, C three PO. In particular, I actually really do love C three PO. I think he's fantastic. Um, I think all the characters are well drawn. I think the emotional stakes are pretty clear and well drawn and well thought out and. So I, yeah, I mean, there, there's a very good reason these, these properties sta- stand up to the test of time. So, yeah, I think it goes to show you that good characterization and good characters goes a long, 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 long way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I guess we can move on to our next segments then. Yeah. So, what have you been reading? I have been reading the final two books in the Healer trilogy by Maria V. Snyder. Uh, So, last time I had just read um, Touch of Power, and then I read, I think it is Scent of Magic is the second one, and Taste of Darkness is the one that I am uh, in the middle of right now. So still on my Maria V. Snyder kick, which is fantastic. (laughs) I just really love her books. Uh, And then David and I are reading aloud the final Red Rising book, Morning Sun. (laughs) So our read-alouds are still going Mm -hmm. strong. Um, And that is what I'm reading. What about you? Still on my Beethoven biography. I am floundering about for my next audiobook read or mm. listen. What would you call reading an audiobook? Like it's not really reading. They do call it reading, I think, is like the accepted term, but I always feel strange saying that too. Um, but yeah. So I have an audible credit, and normally I'm pretty good about using that credit, and I often buy several more audiobooks than, <laughs> <laughs> than I have on my plan. But at the moment, I'm kind of, I don't know what I want to listen to, and uh-huh. I don't, you know, because a lot of the books that I've already loved, I've already bought, you know, the audiobook versions of. So, I like young adult fantasy, I like 
you know, a lot of action, adventure, and romance, a good plot, and I just don't know what I feel like listening to, because, you, you know, I'm at probably listen to the healer series <laughs> i think i tried out a sample and i think the narrator sounds like a 50 year old woman oh oh no it was my problem that with, won't work it then. was my problem with the study series as well because i thought oh i was i was going to get those on audio and then i tried out the sample and i was like oh my god this yelena sounds like she's like 50 and the chain smoker so never mind oh. narrators are really important choices when it comes to audiobooks. They are. I, I, I agree. And especially with YA, I, I hate when YA books are narrated by people that do not sound sufficiently young. young. <laughs> I have that problem with the Hunger Games audiobooks, which I own. Um, and the narrator just sounds so old. Yeah, she does. She doesn't sound like a teenage girl. Like, you don't have to sound like a girl girl, but like... Eh. Right. But a young person. <laughs> No matter how much tragedy you've seen in your life, you are still only 16. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A narrator is pretty important to me. And um, so there's there's that, really. I mean, I'm, per- I'm open to reading a book that I haven't read on print before. So I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys have any suggestions or, you know, you can leave them in the comments for me to try and find my next audio read because I'm sort of, I don't know, all the books I'm looking forward to that are forward to on audio have not come out yet. So I'm kind of in this period where I'm just like, I don't know what I should be listening to. But yeah, other than that, still, still the Beethoven biography, which will be going on for a while. (laughs) Um, okay. So then what have you been working on? Nothing. Is the honest answer. I have a class. I'm reprising my class on publishing contracts at the Laugh Literary in July. And so I should start doing my prep work for that, but I haven't started doing that yet. So technically, nothing. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I got, I am getting my first pass pages for Winter Song tomorrow. So that means galleys should be ready. Middle of July, I think. So I'm um, pretty excited about that. I'm also still working on the companion to Winter Song. Yeah, nothing, nothing new on my end. This is going to you're, the status is that you're going to hear all summer from me on what I'm reading and what I'm working on is probably going to be pretty boring. <laughs> it's just going to be book two and the Beethoven biography. So, <laughs> yep, that's fair enough. That's it. Any off-menu recommendations? Any off-menu recommendations? I have not watched or or read or done anything new, really. My husband, David, ran a marathon, hmm. and we went to cheer him on. I did not run a marathon, uh, but he did, and... That was an incredible experience. I've never been to a marathon before. Oh, it's fun. Um, yeah, it was really fun. And we got there early. And so we were there early enough. We were about a mile from the finish line. And so we were able to see the elite runners oh, yeah. go through. So the men and the women who were, you know, running it in like two hours. Um, and that was incredible just to see these 
you know, phenomenal athletes, um, accomplish that. And then to see all these other people, you know, running that distance, uh, was really emotional. Like, of course I was really, um, emotional when my husband, you know, crossed by where we were and checking his progress, you know, on the tracking app that they gave us and everything. So that was emotional because I was so proud of him, but just strangers, you know, you would just see strangers go by and, you know, the people standing next to us on the sidewalk would see the people they were cheering on go by. And it was just this amazing, you know, feeling to just witness these people do this incredible thing. Um, so we did that last weekend and that was great. And then I don't think I have watched or done anything else. I got tickets to see Hamilton in Chicago. Yay! And I spent an obscene amount of money yeah, <laughs> and too many hours. But, um, you know, obviously I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to see it in November, but I am so thrilled. Uh, so, so, so thrilled. So I'm really looking forward to that. And you're going to see Hamilton soon. Yes, in a couple of weeks. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, it's funny things like mentioned about the race. Uh, I hate running, but I love races. Because mm-hmm. I had this misguided attempt in New York that I was going to run the New York City Marathon. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I remember that. Um, basically, if, in order to get into the New York City Marathon, of course, my conception of it was I was like, well, it's kind of a cool idea. I'll do it to like, and I thought I would walk the 26.2 miles. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, by the way, I have not been to Staten Island. I lived in New York for 10 years and never been to Staten Island. But, uh, and I thought the New York city marathon would be my excuse to go to Staten Island. Uh, never happened anyway. So, but, and I, and I researched how to get into the New York city marathon and there's a couple ways you can do it. You can be sponsored by an organization you can have run a qualifying marathon before, so like Boston, LA, you know, London, whatever. Mm-hmm. Or you can pay an obscene amount of money. You can enter the lotto, which the chances of getting in via the lotto are about as hard as it is to get into Hamilton Lotto, apparently. So not that easy. And or New York has a program called um I can't remember what the actual name of it is, but there's a running club in New York City called New York Roadrunners. And if you run nine qualifying races with them and volunteer at one, you are automatically entered for the New York City Marathon the following year. So my roommate at the time and I thought this would be kind of a cool thing to do. So she and I joined uh, New York Roadrunners and we ran a bunch of races. And I really enjoyed that experience. I loved it was like maybe a race or so every month. Um, And it was just great. I loved going to them. I just hated training for them. Like a 5K is not a big deal. Even up to like five miles is not a problem. But I ran a half marathon on accident. And after that, I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> why, do, why, do, why do people subject themselves to this sport? It's awful. Um, but anyway, so uh, the, the, the following year, Rachel, my roommate at the time, had gone to France to teach English. So we postponed. You can postpone your, your your marathon entrance. So she and I decided to postpone it so we could run it together when she came back. Of course, the year she came back was the year Sandy happened and the marathon got canceled altogether. So 
that was to me I took it as a sign that the universe just doesn't want me to run <laughs> and that's fine I I accept that um, but yeah as far fair as, enough yeah as far as other off menu recommendations go I really haven't been doing much either um, aside from going to the gym I am so I have a Fitbit and it has this tracker that like it it kind of tells you like if you've like made a over 250 steps per hour mm-hmm. and the completionist in me gets highly stressed when it's not all green so <laughs> i i have now set up timers on my fitbit every hour to buzz so i get up and like walk at least 250 steps every day before coming back to my desk. I actually find it has been extremely beneficial to my state of mind at my day job mm-hmm. as opposed to just sitting there and resenting it. That hour, that break every hour actually just improves my mood a mm-hmm. lot. Um, and also it means that I've hit 10,000 steps before I even leave the day job. So <laughs> like, um, which is my goal for the day. So I, I actually recommend that. It's not, if you're a completionist like me anyway, if, if this is something that works for you, clearly it works for me because I just keep looking at it and be like, one day I had 11 out of 12 hours and it irritated me so much. Oh no. <sighs> I was like, no, no. You could hear the screams of agony. Um, but yeah, that's, that's more or less it. I haven't really had time for what I call other extracurriculars, mostly because of writing book two. So it's going to be really yeah. boring on these updates from me. <laughs> we'll have to come up with another question, <laughs> something else, something else we can catch up on instead. <laughs> That's all for this week. Next week, we're going to be revisiting our publishing 201 series. Mm-hmm. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher. Podcast Pickle or your podcast provider of choice. Yes, next week we're going to go a little bit further, kind of what it's like on the other side of the desk. Uh, short story, it's all meetings. <laughs> yeah, meeting after meeting after meeting. Mm-hmm. So exciting. So tune in. <laughs> also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website publishingcrawl.com where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram or my website at penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at sjjones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. I don't really want to watch Sprinkles right now. Tell me about it. I mean, eventually, yes, but... uh, I know, the actual thought of having to rewatch those is, like, causing me pain. (laughs) 